Good morning. Those joining us in person, those joining us online, Family Sunday, round two, we are here. Uh, we'll see how it goes. Amen, amen, amen. Uh, let me pray together. First of all, I've, I got to get this like internal temperature in this building right, because last week I was sweating like crazy, um, and now I'm freezing. And so praise the Lord. Pray with me. Father, uh, we just, we continue in the spirit that preceded this moment, God, just one of faith and belief and declaration of your faithfulness. Would that crescendo into trust, not merely acknowledgement or affirmation, but actual trust, would you use your word to, to push us towards that end? Where if we know you, if we're, if we're Christian, we have believed in the good news of Jesus Christ and in the words that, that were spoken by Zachariah and just spoken by serenity that there's forgiveness for sin. For those who've believed that, would we be strengthened and refreshed by the word. For those who have not believed that, would there be a transfer of trust because we have seen your goodness? And so would the crescendo be faith? God, every time we come into this space, it's, it's supernatural work being done by your spirit, fighting for our attention, fighting for our affections. We know Sundays like this they seem to amplify that work, but God, we believe in you. And so fix our eyes upon you through your word. Give me clarity of thought, speech for the moment that we find ourselves in. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you have a Bible, grab it. Meet me in Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one is where we're gonna be um, today. We're actually gonna close out the chapter. My name is Muchi Ukebu, one of the pastors here. Honored that we could be together in this moment. For those joining us online, um, and we're glad that you have connected as well. Family Sundays are always refreshing for me because I, I think about just temple life of the people of God of old. And temple life like, was not merely like somebody getting up and then having a monologue, right? But there was this interactive reality of the whole family of God. So there was kids there. There was... There was priests. It was, it was an expansive experience. It was messy. Kind of like what today is. Messy. But I like it because not only does it connect us back to the reality that our, our faith, if you're Christian, has, has some pretty historic roots. We're going to get there. But it also reminds us practically in these moments that life is messy. Thousands of people. Let's get to the parables. Um, I've heard a birth story, all of that stuff. And it's like, man, there's so much richness here. Um, so known as odor fatigue um, or olfactory adaption or nose blindness is the temporary normal inability to distinguish a particular old odor, smells and everything like that. Olfactory, ENT, praise God. Everybody has experienced this. Uh, my girlfriend, who is not my wife, she experienced this my junior year in college when she came to um, my house with my roommates and she was on Fry Street, 416 Fry Street. And she was like, what is that smell? I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, it smells like five guys live here. Well, because there's about five of us that do live here, actually six. One's not really there all the time. 
And then there's a lot of other words that exited her mouth that I can't say because there's children in here. Um, but I didn't smell it, you know what I'm saying? But then I, after she said that, I started to smell it a little bit more. Does that, does that make sense? Like if you, if you have an international background, uh, you know this to be true, right? Like your, your parents would cook food and you're like, you don't notice it. And then you go to school and people are like, you good? Did you shower? And then fights ensued. That was my childhood. Amen. You could all for me. It was very traumatizing. Right? But we've all experienced it in some shape, form, or fashion. It's this sense where you're desensitized to an aroma. You know what I mean? And you need outside help to grab your attention again. And, and the aroma of the text that we have is so rich, man. What it says about Jesus, what it says about John, what it says about us. But we need outside help to get its richness. That's why we preach. But really, it's the spirit of God, man. And so the prayer is that God would awaken our understanding, that he would remove the fatigue. Today, I just want to glean from a father's life and song. The breakdown, the flow of thought is going to be like this. We're going to look at a question his life confronts us with. We're going to look briefly at a comment regarding how Luke frames this interaction. And then we'll move on to some lessons his song teaches us. No hyperbole. There's at least 20 lessons that we can learn from his song. At least 20. I counted 25 when I was studying. I had to wrap it up because I was like, man, I don't want to preach for two hours. Plus, I was crying like a madman in the Citadel. And so I was like, let me stop. But just even if you just listen, three times the hand of God is mentioned. Three times. The hand of the Lord is on this child. Deliver us from the hand of those who hate us. The hand of our enemies. And even just something as simple as like noting those three times. We get this idea of whose hand is greater, God's or man's. So many lessons here. The scriptures invite, they instigate intrigue. So even as we read, would God instigate curiosity, intrigue, and faith in our lives? Question his life confronts us with. Brief comment regarding some terms and then some lessons revolving around Jesus and John, and then we'll close. Let me read part of it, and then we'll, we'll get to work. John, Luke 1, starting in verse 57, reads like this. Now the time came from Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord has shown great mercy to her. Then they rejoiced with her. Mercy produces great joy. If you have received the mercy of God in your life, you should rejoice exuberantly, unashamedly. And on the eighth day, they came up to circumcise the child, and, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Don't miss that. Oh, Zachariah is mute, so you must be making stuff up. Let's ask him. Subtle shade. That's actually not subtle at all. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loose and he spoke blessing God. 
and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Luke is retelling these stories, not merely to chronicle history, but to strengthen faith. They become repetitive after a while, but rather than getting bored with the bombardment of similarity, we have to step back and say, well, Luke, what's your agenda? Why are you including this? It's not like you ran out of source material. Have you ever seen those comedians that keep telling the same jokes? It's like, I need you to get new material. There was so much that Jesus did that could not be contained in these books. But he's grabbing pieces and he's putting together a narrative to strengthen faith. At this juncture in the text, what Luke is trying to do is he is trying to turn our eyes and our attention, the eyes and the attention of the first audience and really anybody who reads it, to the reality that God is inaugurating something. You know what inauguration means? When something is beginning anew. And what he's also doing is he's not just turning our eyes to the, to the reality that God is inaugurating something. That's why you see the presence of signs. You see the presence of miracles. You see the presence of the Spirit of God. It is consistent at every time God is inaugurating something new from Genesis to Revelation. And Luke, Luke picks up on that reality. He's inserting it here. But what he also wants us to see is that, that God isn't just inaugurating this new thing. Call it the kingdom of God. Social upheaval, spiritual renewal. But this inauguration is actually a continuation of a promise. It's fulfillment. He is pinning everything as fulfillment of promises, not merely random acts or events that have happened. I will be a broken record about that because Luke is. Now, that's going to show up in these two dynamic, miraculous births, John and, and Jesus. But before we get there, it is worth looking at Zachariah's life one last time. And it may be a minor point for, for some people as they look at the text. I don't think so. But honestly, I just pastorally listening to various conversations, it feels like it may be a major point for many people in our church. So I want to say this. Gio talked about this when he let out, but the angel Gabriel announces what's going to happen. Man, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna, your wife is going to conceive a son in this old age, reminded us of Abraham and Sarah. Zachariah doesn't believe. He doesn't believe. And he is now made mute for nine months. That is a long time. Think back to where you were in February. I know where our church was. We were weeping. We were trying to raise a significant amount of money to care for people. Nine months is a long time, but it's not at the same time. 2022 has been a blur, yes? But he was nine months silent. Forced solitude, if you will. Not being able to communicate 
as effectively as you may naturally be able to had he not been muted. And the scriptures paint this mute reality as discipline from the hand of God. Not punishment, but discipline. There's a difference there. The difference between discipline and punishment is the intention. It's the aim and the ultimate outcome. Punishment is to make someone pay. They've wronged you. They've done wrong to someone else, and I want you to pay. Therefore, I'm going to punish you. That's not discipline. Hebrews says this. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Do not, nor be weary when reproved by him, corrected by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That's verse 6. And then it goes on and on and on. And then at the end it says, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. In other words, the aim God attaches to discipline that he hands out is that we would experience his love in a unique way and then grow in maturity, that we'd be trained by the discipline, period. All sorts of implications. And what's super fascinating to me is that this man has been experiencing this season of discipline for nine months. And at the end of it, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is praise. Do you know how abnormal that actually is? This is Family Sunday. So I know what's going to happen. Some of you parents are going to be, look what you did during service. And so you're going to go home and you're going to start removing stuff. Oh, no switch today for you. Amen. You're laughing because you know it's true. Praise God, Pastor Jonathan. Right? And some of us, you know, we got pow pow. That's the kind way of saying you got beat. Maybe it was timeout. But if you pow-powed or timeouts your kid, how soon afterwards do they want a hug? Now, <laughs> Jesus, give me a hug. Come on. Let's bring it back together. It's like a, they need like a 24-hour cool-down time before they want to see you again. Right? Immediately, immediately, He's like, man, the Lord, he starts to rattle off some 25 expressions of Hebrew poetry and prophecy, praising God. Who he was on the other side of God's discipline is powerful. And his life begs a question, how will we respond or how do we respond to discipline from God? How do we respond to that? His response seems abnormal, but God intends it to be the norm. It begs another question. Who do we envision ourselves to be on the other side of God's discipline? Like if you're in a season of this, like there's some seasons that we choose and there's some that choose us. But we always get to choose how we respond. And so if you're in a season of discipline and you know it and others see it, who do you envision yourself to be on the other side of it? As one trained by the pain or somebody who learned nothing at all? Last question. Who does God envision us to be on the other side 
of his discipline. When his hand is heavy, when his correction, when it's clear, who is he forming you into through the difficulty and the discipline? There's silence and solitude that this man is confronted with. It is consistent throughout the scriptures because there's some things that God is only able to teach us through silence and solitude. If you're in a seasoned soil class at the well, you've been working through spiritual disciplines, so you know that. Zechariah came out better. Would we be like him? Not just a question that I think his life confronts us with, or really a series of questions, there are more, but I don't want to just get stuck there. But I do need to make briefly a comment regarding some loaded terms that frame his prophecy. Verse 67 reads like this. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. If you make notes in your Bible, underline filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Those are loaded terms. Those are loaded terms. I don't want to dive deep into them because December 4th, when we look at the baptism of Jesus, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit extensively. Um, But I do need to make a couple of comments. We can use the same words with different dictionaries. Let me give you two examples. That's a cap. This tea is piping hot. Right. If you are over the age of 30, no, that's that's not fair. That's kind. I'm a millennial. Amen. If you are over the age of 45 and you hear that's a cap, you're primarily going to a garment that you put on your head. Fair? It's like, oh, is it a fitted cap? Is it a snapback? If you hear that tea is piping hot, you blow on it. Like, what are you doing? Like, blow. Put some ice in it. Is it iced tea? Is it hot tea? Is it matcha? Is it latte? What is it? Herbal? Oolong? Right? But if you are under that age, eh, 45-ish, that's a cap. You're like, who's lying? Who, who's, who is telling the lie? And if you don't know that, that's because you're over the age. You're like, really? Yes. Freaked me out the first time I heard it. That's why I'm in the middle there, Jerry. I could be letting you know. If this tea is piping hot. You're like, oh, that's gossip. So who said what, who did what, and who did they do it to? Yes? You can use the same words, same phrases, but have different dictionaries, and you import idea and meaning into phrases and words that are used. And often that import of meaning is based on the experiences that you have and the culture or the generation that you're part of. And so, filled with the Holy Spirit or prophesied, every single Christian is importing meaning into that. And what I want to say is, that's dangerous. I said it last week, and it needs to be reiterated. It is far easier to import into the Scriptures our own experiences and perspectives than to let the Scriptures inform our own experiences and perspectives. So briefly... When Luke uses this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, by the way, he's going to talk about the Holy Spirit some 73 times in his writings, Luke Acts. He is using the Holy Spirit different. He is drawing our attention to something different regarding the Holy Spirit than John. 
When John uses the Holy Spirit or when John is talking about the Holy Spirit, whether it's in the Gospel of John or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, John is talking about the abiding presence of God with his people to comfort and empower. That is how John is specifically focusing on the Holy Spirit. It's not that he's neglecting other aspects of who the Holy Spirit is, but he has a very clear focus and a very clear emphasis When Paul uses the Holy Spirit in all of his epistles, he is primarily focusing on the inward work of the Holy Spirit to transform a life. The inward work to bring about renewal and strength. When Luke uses the Holy Spirit consistently, when he's talking about filling of the Holy Spirit, it is always wed to proclamation. Always. That it is, it is wed to this idea of, of, of being controlled and consumed by who God is and what God is doing. And now it is showing up in what you say. In Luke, in Acts, it's consistent. He is not using it primarily the way we tend to use it. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit yet? And then what that usually means is, are you able to do certain things, speak in tongues, sign, power gifts, power encounters? That is not what Luke is after. Proclamation. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, and immediately he prophesied. Prophecy. Also loaded. We import into that. The scriptures have really two major categories regarding prophecy. And then a third one that's there, but it's not, as, it's not as pronounced. The two categories regarding prophecy are foretelling, so you're, you're, you're telling the future is more predictive in nature, and forthtelling, that you're actually really calling people to account who God is and what God has already said. When you look at this, it's actually primarily forthtelling. And when you look at the scriptures, most prophecy is actually forthtelling. So if you notice what's going to come out of Zechariah's mouth, it's everything that Gabriel already said. And then he's stringing together stuff that was already said in the Hebrew Testament. What he is doing may seem like prediction, but he's actually pronouncing on his son what was already predicted. So we just have to be careful about how we import meaning into words. We need to be Comfortable with letting the scriptures speak for themselves so that we can read the Bible for all it's worth. There's a tool I want to commend to you guys. It's a Bible study method. Here you go. It's inductive Bible study method, but adapted. First, if you want to read the Bible for all it's worth so that we're not forcing meaning into the scripture, but we're allowing the scriptures to bring meaning to us. Pray. The first thing you do before you read the Bible is you actually pray. You pray. You ask for help. Second, we read and then we reread. And what we're doing is we're getting a sense. Third, observation. What do I see? Next, interpretation. What does it mean? Beginning with what was the first author saying to the first audience? How would the audience, the first audience, receive his words? Application, what must I do? And what's fascinating is 
the vast majority of the scriptures were written to communities of faith. And even when they were written to individuals, those people were primarily pastoring communities of faith, or they were reflections of how you should lead or shape a community of faith, which means that even when you get to application, it's not just what must I do, but it's what must we do. Furthermore, biblical application is aimed towards identity. Who does God intend me to become by this text? And then because it's collective, who does God intend us to become by this text? Identity and not merely activity apply. And then we pray. <laughs> After we do all of that, we pray. We ask for help. And we, 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 we don't just ask for help, but because prayer is meditation, we meditate on what we've observed, what we've interpreted, and what we're being called to apply. That is a tool for reading the Bible well. So that you're not forcing meaning into the scriptures, but you're allowing God to bring meaning to your front doorstep. And here's a grid that we all need to be aware of. Can you put that on the screen, please? There's this whole type of, this is dangerous. I could, I'm just going to be right here and point. This is like a profile pose, but it's only because I don't want to see. This is who we are, and this is how we interpret the Bible speaks into our theological tradition and practice. The Bible speaks into our cultural context. The Bible speaks into our personal pilgrimage and experience. And those things speak into how we read the Bible. And they speak into each other. And so we have to be okay and honest with this reality that the Bible doesn't stand alone. That the second God opened his mouth and said, let there be, he began to contextualize. And so we have to do the hard work of, of understanding what we bring to the table and what we bring to the Bible every single time so that we can get meaning from what God is trying to communicate. Are you tracking with me? Let's move on to some lessons so that we could close. I hope that was helpful. Spent more time there than I wanted to, but God bless. Um, let me read. This is a crazy, crazy song. It reads like this. Um, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he has spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will prepare, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins because of his tender mercy, the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Genesis 17 Exodus 15, 2 Samuel 22, Psalm 2, Psalm 92, Psalm 132, Psalm 148, Isaiah 9, 
Isaiah 59, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 31, Micah 4, Malachi 4. Those are just some of the passages that are mentioned here. And there's more. There's much more. All of those culminate to this idea that God is the God of relationship, restoration, and rescue. It sits on this. This is, this is, this is, this is prophecy, but it's really more like praise. And it is this affirmation that God sees, he moves close to people, he doesn't forget his people, he restores them, and he rescues them. It's bursting with messianic hope, with waiting from Genesis to this moment. I love this phrase. Verse 70, and he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. Teaches us lessons regarding Jesus and John. The breakdown of this song is the first part, about three-fourths of it is really just talking about Jesus, and the last half is talking, the last fourth is talking about John. And what we see about Jesus He is the fulfillment of the promises of God. It's so simple. It's so simple, but layered. He is the culmination of the entire Old Testament history. Luke is going to do this again because he's trying to make a point. So he's going to do this again at the end of the book in Luke 24. After Jesus has resurrected, Luke 24, 27 says this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. That he went from beginning to all the scriptures that were in his hand at that point, which was none of the New Testament. And he said, there I am, there I am, there I am, there I am. This was actually talking about me. Oh, you thought this was about David and Goliath? Not really. It was really about me and how I'm going to defeat sin, death. And he just goes all and on and on. It's powerful. But again, this is not just culmination. It's continuation. Jesus is the culmination of the entire Old Testament history. And he is, his life is the continuation of the work of God in human history. A couple things about this, then we'll move on to John and close. Please don't sleep on how Jewish Jesus is. Don't do that. Old Testament history revolves around one community, one nation among all the other nations. Jesus was born a Middle Eastern man, and he died a Middle Eastern single man. All of that matters. Could you imagine being ripped from your cultural context? If somebody stripped you from the fact that you were Italian, somebody stripped you from the fact that you were Dominican, that you were Puerto Rican, that you were Cuban, that you were Venezuelan, that you were Haitian, that you were Nigerian, that you were Caucasian, Caucasians have culture? Yes. Yes. Every ethnicity has culture attached to them. Let's not euthanize people's ethnic heritage. 
That's our tension. We tend to euthanize the ethnicity in people and the heritage attached to it, or we overemphasize it and we make it all that they are. When it's just part of who they are in God's beautiful design, and it affects who they are in real time and the future, you will carry your ethnic heritage into the world to come. This is Revelation 7 which means that there's something unique God wants to show off and tell the world through you being an Italian Christian, through you being a black Christian. There's something God wants to show off. But don't overemphasize your culture. First identity, Christian. Don't euthanize what makes Jesus beautiful. You start to look at everything that happened in his life, and you're like, oh my God, Jesus was a rabbi. And you start to look at the interactions, particularly around the meal table, you're like, oh my gosh, Jesus is disrupting cultural norms. He's shattering boundaries. But if we remove him from his historic cultural context, we don't get the richness there. Let me commend the book to you, Seeing Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes by Kenneth Bailey. Glorious book. It's not on the screen, write that down, holler at me, I can give it to you. It's a great book. That's one implication, please don't don't do that. He is the center of the scriptures, he's the center of history, he's the center of life itself. Don't strip him from what makes him who he is. What what, what Luke is doing though, if if we look at how, how the progression goes, both with what happened with Mary but what we see here, he is not just painting Jesus as this tribal king, Jesus is the balm to the brokenness in humanity. If you ever had a bruise, some people, now I can't testify to the you know, effectiveness of this, but some people, if you have a bruise, you use icy hot. You start putting it on you. Now, that doesn't work for me. I ran track. Have you, who knows what Tiger Bomb is? My God. Whenever we get, get ready to race, the trainer would come in on some Mr. Miyagi, Put that tiger bomb on our body, just loose. Because it makes you feel something, it heals you, it comforts you. He consoles and comforts all humanity who is experiencing brokenness. This is the picture that he's painting. Last bit here, it's super fascinating and rich. Verse 76 says he is the horn of salvation. He has redeemed his people. 77 says he gives knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. 73 says the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is, this is revolving around relationship and rescue, salvation, deliverance, freedom. But what is embedded in the idea is this, being delivered that we might serve him. It's not just what we're freed from, it's what God frees us for consistently. Let my people go that they may worship me. If you're a Christian, what are you going to do with the freedom Jesus has brought to you? Why has he freed you? Is it that you would be an ornament? Is your freedom decoration? 
Or did he free you to direct you towards something beautiful? Becoming someone. A picture of the preferred destination, the future where people are being renewed and transformed by relationship with Jesus Christ. Freedom consists not in doing what we like, but in having the right to do what we ought. Too many people to quote, to cite. So many people said that. He's freed us from something. It's not arbitrary. It's not for anarchy, but it's directional. He aims us towards good intentions with the freedom he provides. Let's close with John. John the baptizer's life is peak. Nah, you had to be there energy. Y'all know, you know what now nah, you had to be there energy is? Anybody, if you're over 45, let me explain. You're welcome. Now you had to be there energy is a combination of back in my day and you have to see it to believe it. It's when something may not make sense now, but in a moment, it made all the sense in the world. Examples, bell bottoms. Look back, why? But in that moment, you had to be there, right? Triple X, White tees. Like, why are you wearing a nightgown? Ah, you had to be there, right? And on and on and on and on. That's John the Baptist's life. It's peak, yo, you had to be there energy. This, this guy was out in the wilderness eating bees and honey. What? And you start to see the stuff that he did. We're going to get there when we get to Luke chapter 3. And you're like, what? He said Who? What? But I want to get in the weeds of his life. While his life was now, you had to be there energy, it culminated in this word called witness. Because he was a prophet. And prophets weren't just carriers of messages from God. I didn't know what was happening. <laughs> Fail. I was, Jesus? Yeah, crazy. They weren't just carriers. This is Distraction Sunday. They weren't just carriers of messages from God. They were embodiments of the message of God. Just look at Ezekiel's life. Crazy. And so when you look at John, if you want to label this man, he was preparer of hearts and a faithful witness. And the summation of that is this, guide our feet into the way of peace. Read this side by side with Isaiah 59. The paths of peace is life as God intends. And John was a faithful witness embodying that life and preparing hearts to experience it in its full when Jesus came on the scene. Sometimes sequences are beneficial. Some of you put milk in the bowl and then put cereal in the bowl. Some of you put cereal in a bowl and then put milk in it because you do it the correct way. Sometimes they're negligible and sometimes sequence is non-negotiable. 
John prepared the hearts of people to receive what God wanted to do in their life. And what has grabbed me is how often we want to model Jesus and yes and amen to that. We are being formed into the image of Christ. But from a work standpoint, much of our work actually follows John, which is preparing the the hearts of people for God to crash down with beauty. Do you see yourself as a facilitator for God's work in people's lives? This is what Paul gets at. Yo, some plant, some water, but only God brings an increase. Apollos planted, I watered, but God did the thing. And in the same way, we facilitate the work of God in people's lives. As a faithful witness, when you finish Acts, what we're meant to walk away with is, will we be a witness? It's not merely will we receive Jesus, which is true, but again, this is written to strengthen Christians. And so will we be a witness? Will the Spirit of God fill us in such a way where we are witnesses of the person of God, Jesus Christ? Excel in believing in who people can be if Jesus gets a hold of their heart. And excel in being an embodiment of who they could be if Jesus gets a hold of their heart. That's a faithful witness. Linger in these lessons on your own time. We have resources for you on the well platform. But man, If we, if we do this, take on that identity as witness because we have been rescued. We have been convinced that God is faithful from old. If we take on that noble responsibility not to be the man or woman, but to prepare the way, to pray, to facilitate the work of God in other people's life, instead of trying to do it ourselves, who we will be is tremendous. And not just tremendous, it is necessary. So I close with that and praying that over us, that we would, we would reflect on Zachariah's life. We would lean into the scriptures to inform us about our own lives, tell us the story of God Jesus, and that story would transform us in such a way where we would be witnesses of rescue. Pray with me. Father, we pray that over this people. We pray that the kids in here would, would be able to bear witness to a life that their parents would grow in that identity as witnesses of God that they would be able to see this from a young age and be so convinced of the faithfulness of God by bearing witness to their parents' lives. God, make it so. We pray that you would shape and form everyone in this room, everyone connected to our body, everyone who says the brook is home, that you would form us around your word, 
Not form us primarily around our experiences, but form us around the richness of your word. And form us into people who are faithful witnesses with life and speech that we were to proclaim. That we would not see the beautiful gift of the spirit of God filling us as arbitrary, but we would delight in all of the dynamics of the spirit with us, particularly the one that moves us to action with our life and with our words. So God, make it so. This we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.